Hello, welcome to the Echo Podcast, where we discuss how our hearts and minds can be an echo of God's heart and mind and what that even means in this world. We're Pastor Dan Sinkhorn and Adrian Terullo from Shiloh Church of Jasper, Indiana. We're going pulpit to podcast here. So in this week's episode, we will be talking about the second coming of Christ and what that means for the church and what that means for the world. So on Sunday, Pastor Dan, you had, if I may interject, an awesome sermon. Um, I was riveted the whole time and I thought it was amazing. So yes, Um, I thought you, we collective did a great job of like welcoming the preschool families yeah um it was really cool to be up front when i was playing with the praise band and see all of the young families out there and to Mm -hmm. see the pews pretty full um so that was really cool and i loved how you made it feel very like family oriented because we are um so i don't know where that really goes from there but uh just wanted to give a quick review Loved it. <laughs> um, Thank you. And it's no secret, we you talked a lot about the second coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so I guess we can just start there. Um, I loved your analogy of using the Advent wreath as almost like a, I don't know, timekeeper, I guess, of like what stage are we in in our well, world? The world has a doomsday clock and we have an Advent calendar. How's that? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) One of them is predicting doom. The other is predicting the greatest thing that's ever going to happen. But yeah, I, uh, well, so my first reflection on that is you, you said something about the preschool families. And so we have a preschool here at, at Shiloh and we invited the families to bring their kids so the kids could sing some of their Christmas program songs for the congregation. And several of them did. And, you know, we always hope that if they don't have a church home, maybe they'll consider us. But um, (laughs) I thought I really blew it for a minute because I had made a last minute decision. My my plan was to read from Titus chapter 2. And... I really just wanted to emphasize that Paul, in his letter to Titus, says something about the blessed hope, which is the title of the message. And the blessed hope is referred to in Scripture always as uh, the second coming, that that, that's the blessed hope, or, or even the rapture of the church, too. But But uh, so I just kind of wanted to give it a frame of reference. And then at the last minute, I thought, you know, you could read this whole book in a Sunday service easily. It's just two pages in the Bible and it's three chapters. And and I thought, well, I'll just read this whole chapter. What the heck? And, you know, it pays to think these things through better. Because I started reading it and it's talking about how women should keep their place and men should act like they've got some sense and and all this. And I thought, oh no, you got visitors in church and they don't know you. And the first thing they hear out of your mouth is scriptures that are telling women to behave themselves and men to behave themselves and old men to, you know, not run their mouths and, you know, all this stuff. How am I going to salvage this? I'm going to turn off anybody who's afraid we're a bunch of religious religious conservatives. 
which we are in a sense, but <laughs> there are people out there. I don't want to, I really don't want to go off on a tangent here, but th there are people out there that are usually referred to as legalists. Mm -hmm. And they're, they are really strict about certain traditions in their church and in their religious life that take certain passages really literally. And for this reason, the legalists will really get stuck on a certain idea, like the roles of men and women, for example. And I didn't want to come off like that, because that's not who I am, and that's not who we are as a church. But... I started reading this passage without a plan for interpreting it because I really wanted to talk about the blessed hope. So with a lot of help from the Holy Spirit and apparently still being able to occasionally gather my wits when I need to, I just started explaining that what Paul was driving at, and I wouldn't have said it if I didn't think it was true because I'd rather look stupid than then prove that I'm stupid, <laughs> you know, because there's two kinds of stupid in a case like this. There's ignorance, meaning you just don't know any better. And then there's knowing better, but doing something that you shouldn't anyway. That's the worst kind of stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, anyway, I said something along the lines of, you know, Paul wants us to be prepared for Christ's coming. And so what he's describing is, is things that the people in Titus's context need to improve so that they can be better suited to the coming of Christ and witnessing to that effect for others. And so I, I tried to soften it by saying that he may not have intended that everybody who reads this, you know, should follow the letter of what he's saying but he was definitely telling people that as long as you act like the world you're not ready for christ <laughs> and so that's where i kind of went with it if, if, if you know i was trying to say to people that the whole point of being christian is to be different that the problem most christians have these days is that they don't act any different than anybody else they know and yet there's this complete disconnect in their lives when they actually need a true faith that's built on solid things. And so there's a lot of people we both know who go to church, who, you know, associate with people from their church because they would prefer to be around those people than other kinds of people. And, you know, there are guys that go to church so they can meet a nice church girl and girls who go to church to meet a nice church guy. And, and there are a lot of churches that do good works like feeding hungry people and fixing broken things and all of that. But there are very few Christians who are clearly living a better way than the world of the flesh does. And that isn't to say that I have any right to brag, because I don't. But what I do know from my own experience is that over the years, the Lord has changed my perspective on things. And the best way I can think of to describe perspective is if you've always gotten up every day and looked out the window and looked at the world of your outside your window the same way every day, then there are lots of things you miss because they're not in your perspective. 
And a paradigm shift happens when you change your perspective. So maybe you get uh, some remodeling done on your house and now the window's in a different position. Or like in my case, you cut down some trees in the yard and all of a sudden the same view has changed drastically because there aren't things blocking the view that once blocked the view. And that's what it means to have a new perspective or a paradigm shift. And I would challenge any believer to live into the words of Paul's letter to Titus to begin by trying to find a new perspective. And, you know, if we could do that, that would be remarkable because for one thing, people in churches have a bad habit of assuming that they're okay. <laughs> you know, now the other side of the coin is, is that there are people who will find themselves fretting constantly over never being good enough. And that's a whole other problem, but that's usually not where most of my experience with church people is. There aren't that many people who come to church feeling that they're not worthy to be there. They're not worthy of salvation or, you know, like, I don't know if that's making sense, but, but you, you know, most people who go to church have a, kind of a pride in their religiosity and the pride in their uh, goodness. And, uh, you know, I used to be a part of a, a train. I, I learned a, a, an evangelism process years and years ago. Some people listening might remember the thing called evangelism explosion. It was big back in the late 70s and 80s. And it was born out of, of all places. It was D. James Kennedy in a, in a uh, Presbyterian church in um, in Florida that he pastored. And, and Evangelism Explosion asks, it starts with two questions. Uh, if you died today, do you think you'd go to heaven? And when you get to heaven, if God said, why should I let you in, what would you tell him? And the vast majority of people answer the question, yes, I believe I'd go to heaven. And the reason that God should let me in is because I was a good person. <laughs> you know, so everybody who goes to church, I would wager, I'd, I'd be willing to put down some big money on this. If you ask everybody in the church this question, they would all believe that they're going to heaven. Now, the question of why is one that I would bet more cautiously. Because some of them believe they're going to heaven because they're good people and because they go to church. And some will believe they're going to heaven because they know that heaven is open to anyone who's accepted Christ as their savior. But most people go to church assuming that they're good enough and not knowing why. And so the whole Titus chapter two thing was kind of a uh, an accident that I think ended up serving a good purpose because I could say to people, look, before you can deal with the fact that Christ is coming again, and before you can deal with the fact of the rapture, 
the first thing you need to understand is, is whether you're confident in the right reasons for you to benefit from those. I mean, come on, it, it, you know, you're assuming that when the rapture comes, you're going to get snatched away. But why? Why do you believe that is true? Because you're a good person. And if you believe that when Jesus comes again, that he's coming for you and not to judge you and condemn you, then then what is your basis for that belief? Is it because of your faith in him that saves you? Because the only hope you have is grace? Or is it because you're a good person? And so this is a, a, a fundamental principle. So when I, when I was trying to explain my way out of the hole I threw myself into, where I'm reading Titus and Titus is the, the letter to Titus is a description of all the bad behaviors that Christians ought to manage. It's not because Paul wants them to manage these behaviors so that they can be saved. He's saying, if you're saved, act like it and accept the fact that being different from the world is the surest sign that you're saved. And if you don't act like you're not the same anymore, then why should anybody else believe it? And if you want them to accept the gospel that you proclaim, why should they accept a gospel being proclaimed by a person who seems just as messed up as they were before they got this gospel? Now, that's harsh, but it really boils down to something about you should be noticeably different. Would you say, I heard you give your testimony a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. and it was magnificent. Thank you. And I featured in it in certain ways that I was deeply flattered by. But at the end of the day, the thing that people were impressed with, with your story, was the clarity with which you stated I once was this way, then I met Jesus, and now I'm this way, mm. right? Right. And that's where the potency of your testimony is. It's in the transformation. And so people who assume that they're going to get all the benefits the Bible describes for the children of God, and yet they can't prove it by being different. I find that all very unsettling, especially in church. So once I explained my way out of that whole thing where I was able to convince people, I hope, that what Paul's really asking is, is how are you different? And let's just put it in really practical terms. Um, do you live in a way that is unique in your society because of your faith in Christ? You know, that, that, could it be that simple? You know, that in your society where everybody does whatever seems right to them and the society condemns people who would say, no, that's not for me, as if you choosing what's not for you is an offense to the people that you disagree with in principle. I mean, we're living in a time, for example, and I don't think it was that different in Paul's day because he was living in a society that was Roman and highly liberal and very Greek and, and Roman uh, and had been for a long time. And for all intents and purposes, the world of the West, especially the United States and the world that Paul was preaching in, are very similar. 
very similar. The the you know the 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 physical abuses both uh, in the way that they harm one another and in the way that they um, kind of abuse any sort of dignity of the flesh or any sort of of respect for God's design and and like all of that's the same today as it was then in those days he preached to people in communities that had many gods and had lots of strange habits you know i mean um they practiced religions where they routinely drank blood from the skull of a human being you know or something like that i mean these were people who were as pagan and idolatrous as they can be and he was preaching to them and they would backslide and he would say, guys, you're Christians now. Act like it. Christians actually value women and respect them and treat them with dignity. Christians value and respect themselves as human representations of God the Father. And so they don't do certain things to their bodies or with their bodies or they don't do certain things that testify poorly for how God has changed your nature. You know, um, they don't treat their children the way the pagans do. They don't treat their government and their neighbors the way their the pagans do. You know, so, I mean, there's a whole list of ways that Christians were unique in that society, and he's just trying to get people to see that. And it turns out we're living in a world that's just as messed up as it was back then because we have people that don't have any respect for the dignity of human flesh. The, the value of a life is only relevant to whether you happen to be in agreement with them or not. You know, um, we're living in a time when even Christians, so-called, are condemning Israel for defending itself against a terror attack, you know, because they just don't like Jews and they can't even give you a good reason, you know? And and because it's more popular in the certain crowds and in certain clines of society, it's more sophisticated and popular to stand with the enemies of Israel, uh, you know, because, well, it's just hip, you know? so. So getting back to the sermon and the point that I was trying to pull out of an accidental uh, extra reading of scripture is before we can talk about the blessed hope we have, then before we can do that, we have to understand that Paul put it in the context of the blessed hope is what we're looking forward to. In the meantime, we should be shaping our lives to conform with Christ. And if we're not conforming with Christ while we're here, then why should we expect him to take him where he is, to take us where he is? Why should we expect him to come and get us and take us home with him if we're not willing to conform to him? Now, if we find ourselves, they have the rapture being swept into his presence and on the way by, you know, as we're passing Jesus on our way to the back of the line that's going to be behind him, right? You know, as I go by Jesus, I go, I'm sorry, I haven't really done very well. And he's like, it's okay. I see your effort. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe it'll be like that. I don't know. But but what I do know is, is that um, that it means nothing 
to have been saved by his grace and born again if the same old you is still there every time anybody looks at you, even Jesus. Yeah, and I think a big point there is that being conformed to who Jesus is means you want to do the things that he did or the things that would, I guess, please him. Like, with a change in heart, you no longer desire to do all these things of the flesh. You no longer desire to go out to the bars every night or go to strip clubs or whatever. Like, that's just not an interest because your heart has been changed. And so... I'm I'm trying to formulate a question here, um, but I don't really know how to ask it. Because what I could see some people trying to do or think in this conversation we're having is, okay, I must act like I am a Christian. I must do this, 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 and check the boxes, mm-hmm. right? And so it's not so much a change of of action or or an inaction i guess but it's a change of heart and so i guess what does one do if their heart hasn't been fully changed yet but they want to keep seeking jesus where do you start you know chicken or the egg do you start by changing your actions and your behaviors or do you start by i guess heart change would be the other option right yeah i i think that would fall into that uh that image I gave of change of perspective. Um, let's say that you change your perspective and it means that the view out your window is different now. Well, you're still standing in the same window and you're still you. And, and <laughs> you know, I my perspective or my view out the window still relies on the fact that I wear glasses. You know, I still need glasses to correct my vision so I can see out the window clearly. You know, and, and I, that's kind of a strange analogy, but it's just, you know, we're going to talk about more analogies as we go along because when I go into that whole bridge thing and corruption thing, you know, then judgment suddenly makes good sense to us. But as I think about it, you know, the beginning of transformation starts with the beginning of a new perspective or a new point of view. Um, Your worldview changes because you find yourself caring differently about certain things. So, you know, sometimes it's very subtle. Um, I worry sometimes. I don't have anything negative to say about people who have radical transformations. And I've met them over the years. And these people have been the kind that will say, on, on November 14th, 1979, at a revival preached by Brother So-and-So, I came to the Lord and I was changed forever. And I, I respect that. But my story is 61 years worth of always being around the Lord and gradually growing closer and closer to him. And today I love him and trust him more than ever before, but probably not as much as I will in another year or so. And and so, you know, perspective for me is a slow turn. You know, it's a very slow turn. And 
But the nice thing is, is I was never so radically turned from him that I had to make a real sharp turn to see him, you know. So it's really just a matter of lifting up my head a little higher all the time as I stand before the Lord, you know. So everybody's story is different that way. And it has certain moments, I think. Every, you know, like my story has its moments that are pretty dramatic, um, you know. Um, but the people that really don't seem to be changed I just kind of think, well, I, I don't know. I, I have to admit that I've been, I've been a little harsh or judgmental in my thought at times for many of the years of my ministry because there are certain types of people in church that frustrate me. And it's not them. It's not like I, you know, I'm not trying to, to, to sound like I'm contradicting myself. I, I don't want people to think that this means I'm a pastor who doesn't love everybody in my church. You know, the truth is, is that the, every year that I'm a Christian, I love people more. And I really love the members of my church family. It's just some of them are hard to like. Some of them are just stinky people with bad attitudes and they are harder to like than they are to love because when you look at them through the eyes of love you pity them because they just can't seem to get unstuck from this mindset that's making their life harder on them and the people around them than it needs to be because they won't relent you know mm -hmm. and so i i but but my point is is that i find that there are certain group of people in every church that they seem to be really sure what church is and what I should be doing as a pastor and what you should be doing as a youth leader and what kind of music we should be singing and what kind of scriptures we should be reading and what translation of the Bible. They've got the answer for everything, and yet they do more to make people unhappy as they strive to keep their religion. Mm. <laughs> And it just doesn't make any sense to me. They frustrate me because I don't understand why they're here. You know, why do you keep coming back? And I literally have had a handful of people in, in the years that would just look at me and say, I've been here all my life and you're just one of the pastors that we've had. And when I don't like a pastor, I just wait them out and they send us another one. You know? So, you know, when when uh, when I declared recently that I figured I'd stay here until I retire and I didn't think I'd retire for many years. Um, there were certain things that happened in the life of our church that kind of proved that that would probably be true as God willed it. And so there were people that were waiting me out who realized that I might outlast them. <laughs> You know, but I don't want to I don't want to go off on a tangent. You know, we were talking about the sermon, the second coming and everything. But but the whole idea, you know, that people can change and that people ought to change if they really want the assurance of Christ's return being a good thing for them. Because when we started talking about Christ's return, the thing we have to contend with is, is that he's going to deal with corruption. And by corruption, I always use the example of a rusty bridge. I've used this for years because I want people to understand that corruption in the biblical sense is more about 
the decay and decline of something that should be strong and sturdy and reliable, you know. And so corruption is a gradual rusting out of a bridge that supports us and transports us safely across a chasm, you know. And if that corruption isn't mitigated by regular maintenance and fresh paint, it'll just keep going until one day the bridge reaches a point when it has to be condemned because it's going to destroy or, or, or someone's going to die, someone's going to suffer because the bridge is no longer reliable. And so it has to be condemned in order to take away the threat that it poses. And so I said on Sunday, if that's what corruption is, then when Christ returns, he's going to deal with the rust in this world, the corruption. And corruption, literally, in my mind, is referring to the way that the church of Jesus Christ has rusted out all over the place. That, that Christians, so-called denominations, churches, hierarchies, buildings dedicated to Christ, all of them are full of rust, whether there's systemic rust in the denomination or the religious structure, whether there's individual signs of rust in the people who claim the faith but aren't willing to live as though they need occasional scraping and painting, you know, because they don't like that, it's uncomfortable, so why should I do it? Well, because you'll rust away and collapse under pressure, you know. And, and so I'm using this metaphor, but in the metaphor, there's this truth, this image of Christ saying, I've reached the point where I have to go now because there's too much corruption and the world is no longer a safe place for my people. And so he's going to take them away. Now, we had this brief discussion because I really didn't want to make this about that where I just said there are people who debate about whether that comes at the beginning of a seven-year tribulation and a three-and-a-half-year mega-tribulation. And, and uh, uh, you know, there are people who believe that, that literally there is going to be a, a rapture that pulls the people out of, the Christian people out of the world, and then the world decays rapidly because the, it turns out the Christians are the best preventative in the world for, for decay. And, and without them there, then it gets, you know, it's going to be pretty nasty, pretty fast. And, and so there are people who believe that the rapture comes at the beginning of the seven years. And I'm all for it. Because if we're going to have seven years of hell on earth, I just soon he takes me out before it gets here. And I'd be fine with that. So Jesus, if you want to do that, that's fine. But it also depends on an interpretation of scripture that isn't universally interpreted that way. And there isn't enough substantial evidence to verify that particular view. And it wouldn't surprise me where the, you know, the enemy is awfully clever and he knows our Bible as well as we do. And our enemy could be very clever and using slightly skewed interpretations of scripture to blind us or to dull our senses, you know. So I would love to have a pre-trib uh, rapture where the church people are stolen away. That's what the word rapture means, to steal away. You know, we're, we're in the blink of an eye, we're gone. And so, you know, you and I are gone and these microphones are still turned on and recording silence, you know. I'd, great, hope so. Mm -hmm. But it could also mean that 
the rapture comes in the middle of the tribulation before it turns into the great tribulation, which is another scriptural interpretation. But the one thing we know for sure that scripture is undisputable, indisputable about is that when Christ returns, we will join him in the air, united behind him as he marches into the world to reclaim the world, you know, this, this kind of victory. And the Bible says that when we join him, we will be changed in an instant. In other words, our corrupt bodies will be completely uncorrupt at that point. And we will be like him after his resurrection, except without the scars of the cross. And that part we can know for sure. So I'm going with that as the sure thing. And I don't know, some people, I'm getting the feeling I don't have to worry about anybody listening to this that's you know radically opposed to me. And I don't care if they are, but. Fact is, is there are lots of debates about this. And I think that when people of the faith spend more time debating about this and criticizing each other, then the, the, the devil wins, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because the devil wins when we're arguing with each other about legalism and stuff like that. You know, there's nothing more important than being completely ready to receive Christ. And then after receiving him, being ready to be received by him, <laughs> you know, so... Whenever the rapture comes, one thing we can know for sure is, is we're no longer in the world and we're no longer in corruption. And while we change in that state, he begins his process of judgment. And it starts first with the judgment of his people, which is not a judgment in the sense of condemnation so he's not going to condemn our bridges for being corrupt because they're not they've been fixed what he's going to do is give out rewards or basically say you know dan here's your job in heaven or here's what i want you to enjoy as a benefit of the way that you tried to honor me and, and mirror me in life, you know? So, so there's this thing, some people call it the beam of judgment, but it's Jesus's, it's Jesus's crown giving or his restoration, not restoration, but his distribution or dispensation of the, of, of, of God's grace. Um, now that we are able to be fully functional in the flesh, in the very presence of God, like Adam and Eve were, you know, like I hope one of my prizes is that I get to go for a walk in the cool of the evening with God every now and again, because I just think that's really cool. Well, cool of the evening even, but <laughs> I, um, but then Jesus is going to judge God's enemies and he's going to judge everybody who opposes God. And that's going to be a matter of condemnation. And there's going to be a lot of that. And the condemnation is not a matter of debate as far as whether or not um, there's going to be punishment of the severest sort for God's enemies. The question is, is the condemnation, people are going to say, but if Jesus, if, if Jesus is love, if God is a God of love, then, you know, he should forgive everybody. But why would that be fair? And what kind of a true God would be unjust? 
you know, the problem with God's judgment is, is that it will result in some people's condemnation. And it should. Because what is the point of making sure you're in a saving relationship with Christ if it doesn't matter? And if it doesn't matter, then that's a really unjust thing to do to the Son of God who took on to himself a burden that for him was unthinkable and we can't even comprehend that because he's the Son of God. So what could he have taken on that was incredible for him to the point where he asked his father to take the cup away from him, but then, it said, then he said, okay, I'll do it. And so we can't even comprehend the degree of suffering that our Lord went through because of who he is, because we're not. So we, we, we only know the visual things. We know the cross. We know the death of the flesh. We know the physical torture and the humiliation and the abuse that he suffered. But that's, that's nothing compared to what he endured in the celestial realm for our sake, because this was the highest price he could pay, which is why it was enough to reconcile us and our sin. So what I'm saying is, is that if God isn't just to his own son, then what's all of this about, if anything? What's the point? There has to be judgment. God has to condemn those who reject him, who reject his son. He has to condemn and end the reign of evil. He has to do it because that is the point. That's the point of the cross. That's the point of accepting salvation through Christ. Or as some people in some traditions would say, that's the whole reason for getting baptized or whatever. But however you want to put it, at the end of the day, none of this matters if those people who reject God, reject God's grace, reject God's son, continue to do so till the very last of time and God doesn't punish them for it. I mean, what's the point? So there has to be a day of judgment. There has to be a time of condemnation because we were given the choice to take on the mantle of Christ and transform our lives into his image to the best of our ability while living in the world of corruption. That we would be livers and doers of the word and that each day we would do it better. Not because it earns us anything, but because it is the sign it's his sign on us. It's his mark on our lives. And people should see that. And people often do. And the funny thing is, is it's usually the people that reject him that see it more clearly. It's the ones who don't like you for being a Christian who will call you out, you know. And in the same way, those people will be the ones that recognize a phony Christian from a mile away. So a bunch of Christians, so-called, stand around together in the lobby of a church on Sunday morning, and they all glad-head each other and pat each other on the back, and they talk about, you know, sports and weather and whether the preacher's going to have a good sermon this week or not, and they talk about all of that. And they say to themselves, because we're the good people, 
And then you walk out the door and the people who don't go to church look at you and they say, you bunch of phonies, you bunch of hypocrites. Because <laughs> they could spot you a mile away, but your best friend can't because he goes to church with you. Hmm. <laughs> and that's my point. Like judgment has to happen because otherwise it doesn't count for anything. Why should I be saved? is a question that every Christian should try to answer, honestly. If you are worthy of heaven, why should God let you in? I mean, it's as simple as that. And it isn't because you're good, because you're not good. Do you know that when a man approached Jesus one day and said, good teacher, Jesus stopped him right there. And he says, why do you call me good? <laughs> and he was calling the man out because the man was being formal and polite. And he was trying to, you know, be, he, he was, he was, well, he was being smarmy with Jesus, you know, like, hey, good teacher. I, I want to catch you in a verbal trap. And I'm just going to try to show you respect that I don't really mean. And so Jesus says, let's just stop right there and talk about who is good. Is anyone good? Before we go any further into your little mind trap that you've been working on all day, you laid awake all night last night saying, when that rabbi comes by, I'm going to get him. <laughs> and then Jesus just completely short circuits his plan by saying, so why do you call me good? And who's good? Is anybody good? What does it mean to be good? Even Jesus has proposed that question in the New Testament. And his answer is, is only God is good. <laughs> And so in that statement, he's saying two things. If you call me good because you know I'm God in the flesh, you're right. Which, of course, is not what this guy is trying to do. He's trying to smooth talk Jesus into making a verbal mistake that he can condemn him for, right? And so now he's caught this guy in his own trap and said, look, if you call me good because you know I'm God, then good on you. If you're calling me good because you think it's easy to be good, then you're wrong. <laughs> and, you know, so he completely short circuits the guy. And, and that's the whole point, right? You can't claim that you're ready for the rapture. You can't claim that you're ready to go into the presence of Christ and be redeemed by his good judgment of you unless you understand you're not good. Only God is good. <laughs> And because only God is good, his son, who is God in the flesh, has paid the price that you can't pay because you're not good. So we don't even have to argue about what it means to be good. What we can agree is, is that everybody who thinks they're going to heaven because they're good is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> because what is good? And when you ask people who say they're going to go to heaven because they're good, what that means they'll usually say something like, well, I've never murdered anybody. I've never stolen from anybody. I... And so they name all these things that they consider good society. But society doesn't define goodness. Society defines what's legal and illegal. And a lot of people do illegal things all the time, and they just assume that because they didn't get caught, they're good. You know, 
<laughs> if goodness relies on your driving habits, there's not a person alive that has any right to expect to be in heaven because they're good. Mm-hmm. Because everybody breaks the law, the law of the land. Yeah. You know what I mean? Everybody does. They run stop signs. They drive over the speed limit. They cross where they shouldn't cross. And they do all sorts of things in their cars that are not legal. And that means that they violate the standard law. And Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. So every time you break a traffic law, you have not done as your Lord commanded you because you haven't given Caesar what's due him. Caesar represents the government. And so when he says, give the government whatever they you owe them, then that's a command from your Lord Jesus that you regularly disobey when you drive your car because Caesar wants you to stay under the speed limit, obey the traffic laws, and not be a menace on the road. And every one of us drives like a menace on the road. And some of us are menaces with turbocharged, nuclear-powered menace. And we go to church and backhand, you know, bad backslap our neighbors and our friends and talk about how good we are. Yeah. Kind of absurd if you think about it. It's absurd. And thank God for grace, mm-hmm. right? But I could definitely see how some people would go into like a legalistic rabbit hole there of like, well, I must follow every single rule and I must be perfect to earn God's approval or whatever. Um, and that's how it would be without grace, right? Yeah. If we were all defined by our driving habits, no one would be in heaven. Yeah. But because of grace, we are. Well, so. that's really what separates us from the two biggest competitors with Christianity, right? Judaism is still about keeping the law. That is, if they're Orthodox Jews. Because the very liberal Jews have said, well, we already know we can't do that. So let's not even bother trying. The Lord will sort it out when he finally comes, you know. So that's their approach. And then you have the similar approach with Muslims. Islam says, as long as we keep the law and strictly abide by the law, we'll be right with with Allah. But then there are people who would say, we're not, you know, those kinds of, of Muslims. And what they're really saying is, is that we like being Muslim and we like hanging around with other Muslim people. We don't obey the law strictly because some of those laws are pretty weird, you know. So, so everybody's doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's doing that. And those are the people who often look at people like me and say, well, what's your problem anyway? You know, and, and it's not that I'm saying anything except, you know, I, what I want people to do is not become legalistic. I want people to become realistic because realistic Christians understand that they'll never perfectly live a holy life, but there is a sense that by striving for holiness, you're doing something worthwhile with with your life. And and why do you do that? Well, not because it counts for much in your salvation, but I'll tell you what it does do for you is it counts when Jesus is sorting out your rewards on the beam of judgment and so you're saying, I don't need Jesus's approval to get into heaven because he's already given it. And he gave it to me on the condition of what he did, not what I did. But if there is a reward for anything I do, 
it would be when he says, now that you've been raptured and transformed in the form of resurrection, and now that you're ready for eternal life in the purest sense of the meaning of the word, um, here's some of the stuff I want you to take care of. Here's some of the things that, that I've gifted you for, you know, or whatever. I mean, like, I don't know exactly what that means, but there's, there's rewards that he wants to give. And on what basis does he give those rewards? Well, I have to assume it's because of the way that you continue to let him change your nature. That you worked as best you could at being pliable and moldable. See, that's the difference between legalism and true Christianity. Is true Christianity isn't about what you do. It's about what he does in you. And the only thing you do to cooperate with him in that process is get out of the way. So the hardest thing you're being asked to do to live a holy life is to devote less and less energy to getting what you want and being what you want for whatever purposes you have in mind. I mean, it's just like getting the you out of you is the way you make more room for him to get into you. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I mean, like, like it isn't what we do for him that matters it's what we do to make room for him that matters and when someone says to us i remember you back in high school and now you're 61 years old and in some ways you're the same person you always were but you're so much calmer you're so much more peaceful you're so much more forgiving you're so much more sure of god's goodness and grace and and then i would say good that means that i got all the things out of the way that were preventing that from entering into me, you know? And if there's a reward in heaven, it's Jesus, you know, kind of like putting the cherry on top of that. Say, you know, here's what I have for you, you know, is this little bit extra that you, you know, were striving towards anyway. And, and, and what I'm describing is what John Wesley would just call perfecting grace and uh, pure holiness, you know? It's, it's really, holiness is not something that impresses people. It's what in, what, what real holiness is, is, is something that, I don't know, you'd have to see it to understand it, I guess. But it won't be something that particularly impresses people because it will be a lack of complication, a lack, a lack of worldly sophistication, a lack of, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think about the Puritan kind of images in the movies of the, you know, Quakers walking around, you know, New England, standing tall and, you know, being people of simple words and all of this. And, and their intentions are really good, but, but the piety is put on, you know, and it's like piety that comes from, and piety is just a fancy word for holy living. If, if holy living happens as a consequence of getting yourself out of the way and making more room for Christ's spirit to reign in your, in your being, then piety will result from that. But I doubt that it'll be a piety that really makes much of a difference to people they won't know that that's what they're experiencing. They'll just say, you know what I like about Adrian? I don't know. I just like her. Mm. I just feel better when I'm around her. 
you know, <laughs> like, yeah, I, I don't know what it is about her, but I just like being around her. You know, that has more to do with, oh, I really admire him because, you know, he 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 can't, you know, he can't take a drink of water from a water fountain without giving thanks to God before he does it. OK, that's silly. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So anyway. Did we go where you wanted to go? I think we did, sort oh, of. I didn't have an expectation. I know, but you know, like because that was really the two elements of the message Sunday was basically Christ is coming again, and we celebrate Advent at Christmas time not only for the sake of anticipating the the memorial of His birth, because really all that sweet, wonderful, fun stuff we do on Christmas is a memorial to something that's already happened. But Advent's about something that is going to happen that hasn't happened yet. So Advent was never meant to be a season countdown Christmas present till the day you get your Christmas presents. You know, Advent was always meant to be a season where we acknowledge that, you know, lights were being lit systematically in heaven leading up to the day that the big one got lit, that star over Bethlehem when Jesus came, right? And so in a sense, the same thing's happening right now. And I did say on Sunday that, in my opinion, we're down to the last candle, that we probably aren't very far from lighting that last candle before Christ comes. Because I feel like it's probably getting that close. You know, but uh, next year, we'll light the fourth Advent candle and then have to wait almost a week to light the Christ candle. Really? You know, where this year... We only have to wait 24 hours, technically, because Christmas Eve is the fourth Sunday of Advent. So that means that if we lit it on Christmas Day or Monday, we'd only have to wait a day. But because of the way the calendar works, next year we could light that fourth candle and still have a week to go before we light the Christ candle. My point is, is that it could be that way with the second coming. We may be getting ready to light the fourth candle before Christ's return, but we might have to wait a while before we light that Christ candle because he's here. Hmm. So when I say we're down to that last candle, it isn't necessarily a, a certainty that we're going to have an immediate, you know, the rapture or whatever. And I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, I hope that the ones who believe in the pre-tribulation rapture seven years before it really gets nasty. Uh, I, I hope they're right because I don't really want to be around for it or anybody I love to be around for it. But what I wish people would understand, and I think I, I did dwell on this twice in the last two weeks, and I won't repeat it because I think I talked about it in this conversation last week, is I just wish more Christians, because see, the ones who don't act like they're any different from the world also act really naive about suffering. Like, like they don't think that they got this crazy idea that because they go to church, they're never going to suffer. Hmm. You know, like God owes them something. And, and man, if for every Christian that has told me that they thought God owed them something, I, I just want to say, you got this completely backward. <laughs> you know, yeah. God doesn't owe you anything. That's the whole point. <laughs> he doesn't owe you grace. He gave it to you because that's what grace is. <laughs> you know, he doesn't owe you anything. He's promised you eternal life 
and the assurance that when you die, you go to heaven and ultimately to be resurrected in a new form that never gets sick or suffers. And, and he's promised you that, and he hasn't promised you anything else. But if you think about it, that's a pretty good thing to focus on. I mean, okay, so I, I might have to deal with cancer. I might have to deal with the car accidents or wars, or I might get struck by lightning or, you know, whatever. You know, the world's dangerous and bad things can happen to me and the people I love. And all of that will be harsh and painful and difficult. But I will always remember that compared to eternal life in a pure physical form, it's not bad. I could take what he has promised me and not be mad at him for the other things that he doesn't promise me. And that's really what I mean by you got to change your perspective. You got to change your mind. When you realize that you don't fear death like you once did, you know you've come a long way in your relationship with Christ. Not because you're eager to die or to suffer physically. I don't want a slow and painful death. I pray to God that when I go, I go like snap. I can't snap that finger. You know, <laughs> darn that surgery. That darn surgery. And then Arthur Ritus. He is really hard on me, but, but you, you know, you can't see, I can't, I can't, you know, I can't accept that I have arthritis in my hand that hurts all the time. And I can't do things with my fingers. I used to be able to do, but I'm not mad at God about that. Mm. <laughs> I'm not mad at him about that. In fact, I'm grateful that a surgeon was able to fix the trigger finger that was in there yeah. because at least that got fixed, you know? Because it was way more painful before I got that fixed. So, I mean, it's like, come on, people. Being a Christian means putting things in perspective. And eternal life. Think about that for a second. How many billions of years have to go by before you realize that you've been around longer than you suffered? <laughs> I don't know. Let's say you live an average lifespan of about 80 or 90 years. And 10 or 12 of those years involved great suffering. Maybe all at once, maybe at different times. And then you're in heaven for 100 years, which goes by like a blink because there's no time, right? At what point do you go, I don't remember suffering in life because it was so long ago. I mean, I had some vicious earaches when I was a little baby and I remember some of them, but not very much. And What's the point? Well, you know what? I'm an old man now and I hardly remember those earaches, but I do remember that they hurt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? But I don't feel the pain anymore. You know, so it, it's just like perspective. Yeah, yeah. And I think this would be a great uh, maybe part two for next week. Yeah. I yeah. think you're setting the stage really well for something like that. You know, topic one, God is not a cosmic vending machine. Yeah. Topic two, uh, I don't know, Christmas. Like, how do we navigate that and not be of the flesh? You know, mm -hmm. um, what has Christmas become? Well, that's a good plan because we're going to be kind of wide open because this Sunday being Christmas Eve, we're going to have a lot of fun things that we're going to do, but I'm not going to be doing a whole lot of preaching uh, in the same sense. I don't have anything scheduled and no particular topic with a written text or anything. I, I'm planning on celebrating the birth of Christ with everybody else. So that's a good idea. We can just kind of go wherever we're led on that. Cool. Yeah. Sounds good. Any closing thoughts? I think I've talked plenty. Cool. I don't have any either. Well, you rock. And I'm glad we did this again. 
I hope too. people appreciate you as much as whatever they hear from me because you bring it out. I'm grateful for that. I appreciate that. So I want to wish all of our listeners a Merry Christmas. And uh, Christmas was for me growing up exactly like it was for most little kids. And I didn't sleep well on Christmas night and I couldn't wait to open all the presents. And yet now, you know, all I want to do is glorify Christ. Amen. Merry Christmas.